So today we're going to talk about tissue integrity in preparation for our wound lab. So the first thing we want to talk about is that specific wound assessment. Okay, so we want to document the location, where is the wound, and there's a picture here of some, some specific areas. So we have sacral or it could be posterior thigh. We want to make sure that we are being very specific and we don't say it's on the hip when it really is in the sacral region. The type of wound. So if we do have a pressure ulcer, we need to stage it appropriately. If it's a surgical incision, then we need to say that. If it's a wound of unknown origin, then we need to state that as well. We want to look at the appearance of the wound. So describing the wound bed, is there granulation tissue? Is there eschar in the wound bed? And we want to make sure we measure, which we're going to talk about later on in this presentation. And looking at any drainage, does that drainage have an odor? Does it have a specific color to it? Is there any pain with this wound? And then we want to look at the area around the wound. So the wound edges, are they rolled or are they macerated? Do they have that wet kind of pale look to them? And is the area around the wound, is it, does it have a red color to it? Is it swollen? Does it look irritated? And then we want to make sure we document all of this very carefully. This is the Braden Risk Assessment Scale. And this is what helps us predict if a patient is at risk for a pressure injury. So there are a couple different categories. We look at their sensory perception. So we're looking at numbness, tingling throughout the body. So if we say they're completely limited, that's someone who is numb, they can't really feel anything, going up to no impairment where they don't have any kind of neuropathy, numbness, tingling anywhere. Then we move on to moisture. So is the patient constantly moist, so they're having lots of incontinence or diaphoresis? And then no impairment where they don't have any moisture. Activity level, so we're looking at that bedridden patient um, up to the patient who is walking frequently and ambulates on their own. And then moving to mobility, completely immobile. Those are the patients who are highly reliant on us to help move them. And then we move to patients who don't need us to help them move at all. Nutrition, very poor would be someone who's not eating or drinking up to excellent for someone who has the proper nutrition. I usually pick adequate for most people because we all know that we struggle with the proper nutrition. We don't get as many fruits and vegetables as we do need. And then friction and shear. Do they have a problem with that? Are we moving these patients a lot and there's a potential for a problem or is it no problem where they're moving themselves? So this picture, this is a picture of eschar, that tissue necrosis. So we have necrotic tissue covering the entire wound bed. And this would need to be removed for the wound to heal correctly. So this would be an unstageable pressure ulcer. Now in this picture we have slough. That's that stringy yellow white substance. It's covering the entire wound bed. So again, we have a unstageable wound. This also would need to be removed for it to be healed properly. 
So this is a great example of that granulation tissue. This is what we want to see. This is a good sign that we can get this wound to heal. This is a red beefy looking um, wound bed. So we have moisture here. We have what looks to be like new blood vessels forming. And this is what we want to see for our wound beds. Now let's talk a little about tunneling and undermining. So a tunnel is that top picture there. It's a narrow opening or passageway that can extend in any direction through soft tissue. So it can go into the soft tissue or it can come out in another area like that picture. And it's very important that we're documenting exactly where that tunnel is and how deep the tunnel is. As far as undermining goes, it's a destruction of the underlying tissue surrounding the wound margins. So it's like a little shelf around the wound edge and it can go all the way around or it can be a partial. And again, very important to document where that is and how deep it is, but we're going to talk about that. So as far as measuring our wound, we want to measure the length, the width, and the depth. The length being the vertical, the width being horizontal, and the depth, we're going to use the deepest portion of the wound bed. That's not including a tunnel or undermining. We're just looking at the wound bed and the deepest portion, and we're going to use that measurement. And it's important that we do it in this order, length by width by depth, so that everyone is on the same page in measuring their wounds. Now when we are measuring depth, if we look at the top corner picture, we see that they're using a cotton swab to go into the wound bed. So you would put that in the deepest area of the wound bed and then using your finger, you would come to the top of the wound and mark it with your finger and then you can use your tool to measure. So they're saying this one is about two centimeters in depth. So here are some of the different tools that we might use to measure a wound. So we have a circular measurement tool and we also have the straight measurement. The circular is the same measurements as the um, longer straighter one um, used for wounds that aren't as deep. So we're measuring in centimeters here. So as you can see in that bottom picture with the bullseye on it, we're laying this over the wound and we're using the circular lines to measure. Now with the longer straighter one, we are doing length by width again, same as we would with the bullseye, but we're using that straight, um, straight edge. And in the bottom picture, you can see another example of that cotton swab being put into the wound bed. We would mark the top of the wound edge with our finger or another ruler and then lay it on the long device so that we could measure how much um, depth we have in the wound. Now another important thing with undermining and tunneling is that we tell specifically where that tunnel or undermine is. So if we have a tunnel, we want to give a specific area where it's at and we use a clock design to do that. So if we're placing the device that looks like a clock with 12 o'clock being toward the head, then we can see that this tunnel occurs at 7 o'clock. So we would say that we have a tunnel at 7 o'clock and then using our cotton swab we would measure the length of the tunnel, again in centimeters. Now with undermining, it's usually going to be 
between two times. So if we look in this picture, we can see undermining at from about 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And then we would want to measure the largest depth of that undermining to get an accurate depth for that undermining. And this is very important so that the person following behind you can follow up and see if the tunnel is getting bigger or if it's closing in. So let's talk about obtaining that culture and sensitivity. First thing we want to do, clean gloves and make sure we do hand hygiene. And then the next very important thing we want to do is to cleanse the wound first. So we would cleanse with either a normal saline solution or a wound cleanser. And we want to make sure that we're only cleaning in the wound bed. And this is very important to clean the wound first because we don't want any bacteria that might be on the skin that didn't necessarily belong or was present in the wound bed to begin with. So we want to get an accurate representation of what is in that wound bed. So using our cotton swab, going from side to side, we want to collect a swab of the wound bed, but not collecting any pus and trying not to touch the wound edges. Because again, we don't want to contaminate with outside bacteria. Once this is complete, we want to mark the swab with the patient's name and date of birth who it was collected by, the date and time, and the location of the body where it came from. Preparing for a dressing change. So first and foremost, we want to prepare the patient for the dressing change. Is this a good time? Are they in a comfortable position? Do they need to be pre-medicated before we do this dressing change? And then, once they're ready, we can remove the previous dressing with clean gloves. We assess the wound area and the skin around it. So we're taking new measurements. We're making a new assessment of this wound. Then we would want to cleanse the wound, either with our normal saline or our wound cleanser. And at that point, we would want to change our gloves, applying a new appropriate dressing. So that may be the dressing type that you had on previously, or we may change that depending on what the wound looks like at this point. So especially for dressing changes, we want to make sure we administer those analgesics prior to their dressing change. Cleansing the wound, there's a couple different ways we can do this. So in the bottom left, we can see irrigation, and this is using a normal saline solution to um, irrigate out the wound and we're letting that solution run back from the wound and then we're using just some gauze to get in there and get some of the moisture out. Now as far as cleaning around the wound bed, if we look in the top middle, we see that they are in a circular motion moving away from the wound bed starting with the wound. And we want to do that because we don't want any of that bacteria that's on the skin to be in, introduced into the wound bed itself. And then with the lower picture with the surgical incisions, a couple different ways we can do that. The straight lines downward or outward. So if we are doing the downward motion, we wanna make sure we start with the surgical incision and then we're doing the outside, again, to prevent contamination. And then we are, in the second picture, we are looking at going away from the wound. 
so that we're not bringing that bacteria into the incision. Now as far as wound packing, I'm going to post this video for you guys to look at, but very important, um, the reason we do wound packing is to fill up that space if there's a big gap in the wound and we want that space to be filled because it promotes healing. And it's very important that we don't want to pack it too tightly and we want to make sure we use one piece of packing instead of using a bunch of different ones so that they don't get lost. So these wound dressings are some things that you might see in practice. In the top left corner, you can see the Mepilex or Aquacel foam border. And these are those silicone dressings that have a foam piece in the middle. They are for the most part waterproof and the silicone is less harsh on the patient's skin and they can be removed and put back if they're not too soiled or damaged so you can actually peel them back to look at the wound and then place them back on there. And then in the bottom right we have a hydrocolloid and this is sometimes used for packing and so it goes in as a dry cotton looking substance and then once it absorbs any exudate that's in the wound it comes out looking like a gel and this can frighten patients sometimes because it looks like a big glob of pus but really it's just the dressing and it did its job it absorbed all that exudate so this is a real life picture of a wound vac in place so we see that black foam in the wound bed and then we have a clear dressing, protective covering over that. And then we have the suction canister attached to it. So you can actually see in this picture how the suction is on and the wound is compressed with that foam. And that's what helps heal it. Montgomery ties, this is not really something I've seen too much. Um, but basically it's a huge dressing with ties that are kind of like steri-strips or staples to go on a large wound. Now these are some types of drains that we might see in practice. So picture A, that's a Jackson Pratt or JP drain. And it looks like a little bulb and it works by suction. So if we squeeze the bulb tight, that's what allows the drainage to be drawn out and as the drainage comes out the little bulb will inflate and we can drain that drainage out. Now patients sometimes go home with these as well as picture B which is called an accordion drain and we can also drain the drainage from there and these are sometimes long-term drains as well. Now a hemovac drain these also work by suction, so we're compressing the little compartment and that's what allows the drainage to run out. And as that fills up, it will expand and then we empty that as needed. Picture D, that's a Penrose drain. And this is kind of a free flowing drain. Usually a type of gauze is put on top of the, the wound and the drainage just kind of soaks into that dressing and we're not really emptying anything. We're just changing that outside dressing. These are just some different types of sutures that you might see. 
So we'll see some staples and we might get to remove them during clinical. So there is a special tool that we use, a staple remover, during um, the staple removal process. And it kind of just lifts those staples out of the wound bed. As far as bandages and binders, so their function to create pressure and immobilize and support the wound. It helps secure dressing sometimes, reduction and prevention of edema. Bandages come in the form of rolled gauze, an elastic webbing, or different kinds of fabric. And then a binder we usually see on the abdominal area or after breast surgery. And then we also could see a sling that serves as a binder. And here we can see an abdominal binder. Usually if they've had an extensive abdominal surgery, that kind of helps um, compress the abdominal cavity. And then we have a sling on an arm as well that can be used to secure dressings or just to secure the arm. So moving on to skin tears. Skin tears happen frequently in the elderly because they do have that thin, fragile skin and they bump their elbow on a wheelchair or someone pulls a piece of tape and it rips the skin. And so what we want to do with this is we want to replace that skin flap over where it came from. We don't want to cut the skin off. Um, we want to replace it back so it will promote healing. Then cover this with a moist, non-adherent dressing. Now, very important about skin tears is we don't want to just slap a tegaderm dressing those clear dressings over a skin tear because if you leave it on a couple days it starts to heal and then we try to remove it you're going to destroy what healing just occurred and maybe make it worse so absolutely no tegaderm on a skin tear so let's talk a little bit about the difference between the different types of ulcers that we might see besides pressure so we have venous versus arterial and with the venous ulcer we're going to see a shallow superficial they're going to have an irregular shape they usually appear on the lower leg or ankle and then with arterial this is going to be more of a full thickness wound they're going to have smooth wound edges and if they dangle their leg their pain is going to re be relieved if they have any typically seen on the lower leg or foot. Their extremities are cool to the touch and they're the patients that have the pale, shiny, no hair to their skin. So a venous ulcer is an insufficient blood supply to the area causing this ischemia. So commonly with diabetic patients or people with mobility issues. Arterial ulcers are a pooling of the blood causing an increased pressure in veins. So we see this with DVTs, people with varicose veins, and even sometimes in pregnancy. So here's a picture of both of those. So we have the venous ulcer on the left, and you can see it has that irregular shape to it. And then if we look on the right, we have the arterial, and it kind of has those smooth wound edges, and it is on the lower part of the leg. And this is an example of a diabetic foot ulcer. So on the left, we can see how the wound started out. So once the necrotic tissue was removed in this wound, 
it was more extensive than it looks in the picture. And then we see on the right the healing. So this is a time period of a couple months of wound dressings and offloading boots to keep the pressure off. So this chart compares arterial, venous, diabetic foot ulcers, and pressure ulcers. So with arterial, we are seeing those regular borders that are round. The wound bed can be yellowish, gray, gray brown. They may have some burning, throbbing, and dangling their leg relieves their pain. And we only see a small amount of drainage from these types of ulcers. And then with venous, we see these on the lower leg. They have that irregular shape with a shallow wound bed. We might see that beefy red um, wound bed. And then we are going to see drainage coming from these. With foot ulcers, typically on the bottom of the feet, sometimes on the side. They almost look like they've been cut out with a hole puncher. Typically, um, the wound bed is variable. It can be the pink, brown, yellow. And they are likely not to have a lot of pain because they have diabetic neuropathy. So they may not have even known they had an issue with their feet if they're not checking them daily. And then pressure ulcers. These can occur anywhere on the body. Deep or shallow. Um, irregularly shaped. Depends on the stage of the ulcer is what the wound looks like. They may have some burning and throbbing, again, dependent on the stage. And you could see some bleeding or exudate. So this is a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. The purpose of this is to help promote wound healing in hard-to-heal wounds, especially sometimes in diabetes. And what this does, it enhances the body's natural healing process by allowing them to inhale 100% oxygen in this pressurized chamber. And the thing about hyperbaric chambers is they're not very common. It is an expensive process and it also is time consuming for the patient. So they kind of use these on a case-by-case -case basis to determine if they need it. So let's look at some specific types of wounds. These are pressure injuries. I want you to get a better look at some of them. So this is a stage one foot wound, foot pressure injury, and we have non-blanchable redness. So we don't have anything open, that's what makes it a stage one. And if we were able to touch this, we could see that there is no blanching. This would be an example of a stage four. So you can see the presence of tendon, just that white um, area in the middle. So we have gone through the epidermis, dermis, subcutaneous tissue, and to the tendon. Here we have a stage two, so from epidermis into the dermis. And you can see around this wound we also have quite a bit of erythema, so this wound looks irritated as well. And then finally this is a stage three. So we've gone through the epidermis, dermis, and we have visible subcutaneous tissue. Um, there is also this wound looks like it has some rolled wound edges. So this is a good example of that as well. And it is a good example of that beefy granulation tissue that we want to see in any wounds that we are trying to get to heal. So in the lab we will work on looking at different types of wounds, 
practice measuring and practice dressing some of these specific wounds.